to the Smart Connector podcast, which looks at the power of connection in business and life. Featuring solo episodes as well as a range of exciting interviews with entrepreneurs across multiple sectors, we offer tips and advice to build your impact, wealth and success, attract others for all the right reasons, and become a Smart Connector, the architect of your amazing business and life. Welcome, welcome. And I am here with a most exciting guest, Ian Clark. Welcome, Ian. Hi, Jane. How are you? I'm good, thank you. So, Ian, yeah, Ian, I've just been waiting to interview him for ages. He has such an amazing story. So after calling out racism in one of the world's largest banks, and we will get on to that story, the only person to publicly do so, because as you can imagine, it's not going to go down well, right? (laughs) Ian went on to found a consultancy which raises the imperative for allowing uniqueness into the workplace. Okay, not conformism, right? Which is obviously something that a lot of big businesses like. Okay, so he's steadfast in his delivery of actionable change and sets out manageable strategies to achieve them without judgment. So he's a highly qualified diversity and inclusion trailblazer and a multi award winning human rights actionist with confidence built over 15 years in financial sector leadership. So, yeah, great to have you here Ian. Great to be here thank you. Yeah so I think what I'd really like to do Ian and this is you know something that I was literally blown away by is actually have you tell your story because you know you have had an amazing journey really haven't you to where you are right now. Love to hear you share that really with our viewers and listeners. I mean, it's been a year. It's been a year since I was an investment banker, and now I'm a multi-award winning, multi-world record-breaking rights actionist and and the head of a consultancy. I I just like talk about an identity crisis. <laughs> like it's changed so many times. Like, am I a banker? Am I a psychologist? Am I an entrepreneur? I don't know what I am, but I've given up labelling myself. And maybe that's probably the lesson I should have learned from the start of this. But it's so good to catch up with you again. Because the first time you and I met, it was it was really not long after I came out of banking. So you've kind of been there with me through like this story that is still kind of changing and evolving, and it's still happening like before me. So it's been really interesting few months and year, although many many stressful, many tears, uh, but also many happy moments like you saw last week at the Rising Stars Awards. Um, so I guess the the message is is clear from me, and you said this yourself. A lot of companies like conformity and conformity. I, I that's called a culture fit. I actually teach companies that actually we really should be looking for a supplemental fit. Supplemental fits when you hire people that add and enrich your culture, and they bring new skills and talents and diversity and uniqueness to your firm that will help you stand out and really make the most of your brand, your product, and ultimately your your P and L. Definitely. Yeah. So, so Ian, tell us about your history. How did you come to be in this position today? Because as I said, your story is quite powerful. So let, let, let's hear about your corporate career and, and what happened. So I, I was the, the first and only candidate of black ethnicity on, allowed onto the world's then largest bank's executive management scheme in 2007 after graduating the first in my family from university from not one but two degrees in psychology and financial services management. I was also the only gay applicant that year from 40,000 candidates. 
Um, uh, I was the only psychologist they had ever admitted onto the scheme. They might have come on to regret after a while. But I spent 14 years working my way up the ranks so from retail branch branch manager initially through to sort of um, risk management, strategy, uh, strategic retail strategy in London, commercial banking. And then I leapfrogged corporate banking to join the investment bank in 2011 as a, an investment banking associate, deputy relationship manager, deputy global relationship banker, and then deputy sorry, vice president and director of global banking sales and transaction banking by the time I was 28. And that just, my career just kept ballooning from there. I moved to New York City. My influence in the bank kept growing. I founded the Graduate Inclusion Committee, the Advancing Black Inclusion Committee, the Diversity and Inclusion Committee. I was the lead speaker for the Women's Network. And I was also the, the head of governance for our LGBT network. So I had about 12,000 employees, ultimately, a duty of care and a responsibility to marginalize employees as they were to, to, to promote their interests internally and to champion their rights and opportunities. Um, 14 years. Uh, I was also global head of innovation for our sector sales team and, and also the, the lead on all customer content uh, globally. I was producing that for the sales team to use with clients. And these weren't small clients. These were um, healthcare, retail, consumer brands, technology, media, telecoms. They were Apple, they were PayPal, they were Johnson & Johnson, Merck, Pfizer. All through COVID, I was looking after the top echelons of the Fortune 500 fell to me. Yeah, so, so uh, me last year. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so I mean, really, an incredible high flyer, and also like a huge amount of responsibility as well. I mean, so much landed at your door, didn't it, Ian? In that role, it was sixteen hours a day. <laughs> like, really, yeah, it was quite crushing. Yeah, but it was also it was, you know I'm I'm a bit of a workaholic. I think since you are too as well, so it was probably one of the reasons why I get along so well. But I, you know I really just always wanted to. A lot of people join banking because they want money, right? It really frustrated me when I'd go to careers fairs representing the bank, and everyone coming up to me going, "What's your bonus? How much do you earn? How much money can I earn?" And it and every now and then someone would come up to me and say. You know, I really want to join banking because I want to make a difference. And I know it sounds corny, but those were the ones that I loved because I've always believed that banks exist to transfer wealth from people with lots of money, the lenders, to people without much money, the borrowers. And that's how banks amplify wealth in an economy. And that is our purpose. Right? Talk a lot, we can talk a lot about human purposes here, but all companies also have a purpose. So I was there to promote this long-term purpose of the bank to redistribute wealth around the economy. But surrounding me were a lot of very short-term self-promoters who did not understand and ultimately did not like the way that I, I prioritised other objectives, different perspectives. We shouldn't yeah. have spread of them. Yeah, and so and so standing for this really important role, and obviously you had you were wearing multiple hats. But one of the things that you were responsible for was effectively diversity and inclusion, right? So, tell us what happened. Your story. So, I after George Floyd, I read the room, and the the thing that struck me was, you know, we can all agree universally to to free Britney, but it's only black people that stick up for black rights. It's only women that champion women's rights, and I didn't think that was right. So, yeah, I instinctively gravitated towards allyship. So, I started writing a advisory paper for senior leadership to help them get to grips more with what was happening on the ground. There was a real hierarchy within the bank, and I didn't get the impression 
and that they truly understood the sentiment of the people that I was talking to. So I, I wrote this report. I interviewed 100 staff, past and present. They were women. They were black people. They were Asian people. They were gay. They were straight. They were disabled. They were able. They were neurodiverse. You know, you name it. And I really wanted to capture a broad array of, of, of views. And I started writing this paper. But what struck me was every single story, every single interview I went for was the same. And they were all reporting the same perpetrators as the reason they were leaving the bank. I remember the worst interview I had really struck me for six was the head of the Black Network. And she, this woman was incredible. She had been campaigning for black rights for 20 years inside and outside the bank. And yet her job title was assistant vice president, right? She was more junior than me. And when I spoke to her, I said, you know, what, what do you think, you know, how do you think senior management are doing? And she said, Ian, if it's up to me, I'd recommend that every single black person in this bank resigned today. There is no future for us in this organization. Oh. And that, that broke, that really broke my heart to hear her say that I realized this is a big problem. So rather than I either had a choice, I could either tell the truth or I could, you know, lie and try and sort of save face a bit. But I decided that every life is a miracle and each one gets one story to tell. And I wanted my story to be one that wasn't sad, but one that was full of love and truth. So I wrote in that report what I had been told by these people. And I submitted it to the CEO a year ago at the start of this month. And I copied in the senior leadership team. And I just waited. I said, with bated breath, you know, my arms outstretched. I'm coming, bringing you this report in the hopes that we can work on this together and we can create some change. And I, I just held my breath, really. But little did I know, a couple of weeks later, it was all over the press. The Someone had leaked the report to Bloomberg, of all people. And uh, within two weeks, it was on, in the press in 120 countries, 16 languages. I was seeing press reports with my face on it. And I couldn't understand the language. <laughs> I was like, I think this is about me. <laughs> uh, but it was just bizarre to see the press reporting on what I was doing really obviously galvanized a lot of interest. People really passionate about what I was doing. And I started to get messages from all all over the world from people saying this is happening to me in my institution and um, thank you for championing a I sort of became a bit of a really unlikely hero really and I hate that word because I was just doing my job it was, it was no intention of being a hero so yeah I unfortunately the bank did not agree that I was a hero <laughs> they were very frustrated with me so unfortunately they decided not to not to I flew to London I met them and they, the, the, oh, it's still COVID at this point. So it was still a, a virtual, unfortunately, I wanted a face to face. But, you know, I said, the, here is a $3 billion plan with six points and it will boost return on equity by 1.2%, which in banking is a lot of money. And uh, it'll cost nothing to implement this plan. 12 points cost neutral, fully costed, all of them within our infrastructure and capability to do it today. We can reach 50 50 gender balance in the boardroom very quickly, not 30 years like we plan. We can do this in three to four years. Let's just do it. This is free money. Greedy bankers love free money. And they said, <laughs> no. They said, no. They didn't, not only did they not understand a lot of the concepts that I was explaining. But they said, no, we don't want to understand. We don't want to change. And I said, well, hang on. It's the commercial thing to do. It's the legal thing to do. And it's the moral thing to do. So if you're not going to do it now, I need to get the hell out of here. <laughs> so, so I resigned. I became the world's first and to this day, the only whistleblower in banking on racism and sexism and homophobia. I ticked the whole intersectional box. Um, but I walked over the road to Reuters and I gave an interview. <laughs> my uncle called my stepdad uh, from Hong Kong and I didn't know I was on TV in Hong Kong. He's like, why is he on TV? <laughs> 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 I, 
I didn't know I was on TV down in Hong Kong. I was on TV in Sydney, I was on TV in San Francisco, I was in London, Paris. It was just, wow. My friends are texting me photos from their office with picture of my picture on the wall like on the TV screen. Like, Ian, you're, in, you're on TV in our office. Oops. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know, it's just incredible, you know, being a whistleblower in a huge bank, particularly on those really touchy subjects, sexism, racism, you know, all of those homophobia, all of those really, really key topics, you know, you you probably, I would imagine that you really hit home in a very below the belt area, if you put it that way. Yeah. I mean, we, we have this concept, you know, I mentioned earlier, identity crisis. I think we had an identity crisis in the bank because we thought we were, you know, every time there was a mass shooting and some black people got stabbed or killed or shot, you know, we'd all go, oh no, like what a shame. But then we never looked at ourselves. We never looked at our role, the, the role that we all play within, within the world and creating the world that we all want to live in. You know, the, the brain, like the skin, is just one of 78 organs in the human body, a collection of tissues that work together to achieve a common function, a little bit like human beings or certainly staff in a bank. But unlike the brain, the skin has absolutely no bearing on our character, our capability, our behavior, our nobility, who we are. It has no bearing on our identity. It is merely the surface upon which you look. And deep beneath the surface, I saw very bad people who could be white or men and very good people who could be black or women and and there's no rule of thumb to this there really yeah. is no rule of thumb to this but by allowing only white men to become the Jeff Bezos's and the Elon Musk's mm -hmm. and the Bill Gates and every time a black trans woman from the Gambia with a wheelchair you know whatever says you know I think I've got an idea SpaceX every if we if we kill her every time she says that then we are denying our world and humanity progress. Uh, a huge amount of human potential is wasted, unfortunately, because we only see white men as entitled to succeed. And I think that's such a shame. So it gave us an identity crisis. I spoke up about with a different view that not was not universally accepted, but it was a view that enough people accepted to really mix up certainly my bank and probably the industry. A lot of things happened after my report last year that were world, world, they were world first, the world's first ever regulatory investigation into institutional racism in a bank. The, the first ever black female was appointed to the board of a major international financial institution. The first three simultaneous black appointments were made to the board of a major international financial institution in history. 30 new black scholarships at Cambridge, nine white male managing directors who I implicated in, in discriminating activity were dismissed or encouraged to leave the business. There were the phenomenal ripple effects across the industry continue to this day because one person decided to act differently. Which is just incredible, Ian, because as you said, you know, being a whistleblower is, can you imagine, you know, anybody that's listening, that is a very painful place to be, to be that tall poppy, stick your neck out, see injustice where injustice is happening and actually try and do something about it. It, I mean, leaders across history have always been unpopular. They've always been, you know, targeted, discriminated against. And, you know, this is, you are looking at, if you are watching this on a video, you are looking at somebody who is a leader, you know. So all hats off to you, Ian. You know, I'm really amazing what you've done, you know. 
there's there's this song but you know a lot of things sort of triggered me after George Floyd you really look at yourself and you're and I think a lot of people these there's someone I can't remember who said it but someone said once I think it was Churchill said the problem with having problems is there's always someone with worse problems than you and it's so true you know I, I looked at my career and my life and I thought Oh, outwardly, everyone saw this high flyer. I think you called me a high flyer earlier on. And that's yeah. what everyone saw. You know, there's this guy, he's half black, he's half white, call it gen, gen, uh, racially non-binary. I'm a queer, I'm just multiple invisible disabilities. You know, how's he doing this? How has he gone from, you know, he still looks pretty young. Like, where's your dad? I was getting that from one of my clients. <laughs> and, and I, you know, but worked his way up. So he must be quite, you know, why is he complaining? But beneath the surface, I faced 16 hate crimes over the 14 years I was in banking and any one of them would be enough to derail most banking careers but I, I'm savvy I'm streetwise I'm intelligent I'm very privileged in that regard and it was very hard to outwit me because I understand the law I understand my rights I understand the social dynamics going on around me because I'm a psychologist so I can also see things other people right. can't and I understood yeah. the motivations of the people that were, were attacking me ultimately they're just scared they're scared of difference there is nothing inhuman about them they are and actually I could do the same thing if I was them with their upbringing and their education their perspective it might be me discriminating ultimately we are all human beings and we all act the same <laughs> that's the funniest thing about human differences is we're all so different but we're actually not that different at all yeah and I love that perspective that you know, it's very compassionate to say, look, it's just fear driven. You know, there's no hate there. You're not saying, you know, you're not vilifying these people, even though you experienced, you know, discriminatory acts. And this is very common. I mean, my, well, I won't talk about it too much because I, I don't want to get into mudslinging big corporations, but let, let's just say some of the people that I know and certainly me as well, you know, know exactly what you're talking about in terms of, you know, discriminatory behavior in, you know, white male dominated environments, let's just say. So, you know, I, I do understand that, but I just think that, you know, it's really nice that you are presenting this very refreshing perspective that is actually quite a loving perspective as well that it's saying look in a way they know not what they do and it's, it's our job to inter to educate them it's so common jay i mean you're you're an incredible woman you know you're not only the leader of a business but you're helping other leaders of other businesses lead those businesses better you are yeah. a leader of leaders you know, sling some mud let's sling some love around you're yeah, incredible you. but so often incredible people detach from big businesses like you and now me because we have they stifle our, our potential and they ultimately eject us because they're intimidated by abilities we, you know, we don't look like these older white heteronormative cis men between the ages of 57 and 75 that make up 90 percent of the 10 richest people in our country or the 85 percent of the 100 richest people in the world a believe that they are the best and if you do not conform to that per paradigm that vernacular you're gone it just so happened that I wasn't going to just go I was I you know, I could have resigned and walked over the road to JP Morgan and doubled my salary but I didn't want to leave behind all those people I interviewed all those 12,000 people who I had a duty of care to that woman who led the black network I owed it to them to do what I promised I would do which is to represent their interests 
and to tell the truth and ultimately to follow the Public Disclosure Act, which requires us to report these things. When we see a problem that is in the public interest, we must report it. Whistleblowers have a phenomenally tough time. I've had a phenomenally tough time. I lost my home in New York, my partner, my my pension, my friends, you know, my career that I'd spent 15 years on. I haven't earned a salary for a year now because of that. But I, I now have I now have my freedom. I have emancipated myself. And this this goes back to this week. It was Nelson Mandela Day on Monday. Nelson Mandela, he went to jail for 27 years for what he believed. And I was prepared to lose everything for what I believed. But ultimately, he was the, his country's first black president, his first black lawyer. He's the first black Nobel Peace Prize winner of South Africa. And when he got out of jail, it wasn't that long ago, it was 1990, he, he then became South Africa's first president. And he uh, led the first elections where every race was invited to vote for the first time ever, including the native black population. And also... Gay marriage. He passed gay marriage. South Africa is one of the first countries in the world to pass gay marriage laws. He's not gay, but he did it because he understood through his hardship that if I have this problem, imagine what other problems other people might have. So it makes us phenomenally inclusive when you've gone through hardship like you and I have done, Jane, because you understand that other people must be going through just as bad things and you want to help them them all which I think hopefully is why you invite me on here and why yeah absolutely absolutely and you know the funny thing is you know I remember that I got this kind of passion for black literature American literature when I was like literally about 11 or 12 because my sister had all these books you know like she had the biography of Malcolm X was one of the books that I read when I was about 12 years old (laughs) it was heavy reading for a 12 year old (laughs) Yeah, I know. I mean, I had nobody to explain what this meant to me, but I was like, oh, my God, there are people in the world that, you know, just I was woken up to this whole thing about slavery. And I was like, this is so unfair. You know, you can imagine like 12 year olds. They're just like they think the world is 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 a benign place. And then they actually find out that there are some really awful things happening. <laughs> so yeah, you know, so I read a whole load of black black literature at that time and and it changes so, your view. It changes your outlook yeah, on life. I do a lot of work with schools and I'll go into schools I went into my my old my secondary school for the first time in 18 years two weeks ago and this is the school where where you know where the first time I ever got monkey chanted at you know because I wasn't a white kid it would happen at this school and uh, I was given a detention by the headmaster because he mistook me for another brown boy in a year above you know so I got detention because I didn't answer to the right name it was just silly things that happened and I just so I went back to this school with some trepidation but I gave this talk to all of the sixth formers And I wish I could have stood up there and said, you know, you're going to go into a world where you are judged not by the color of your skin, but by the content of your characters. Famously, the Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech goes. But instead, I had to explain to them that they are entering a world where people will resent them and detest them for their differences and their uniqueness. And it will intimidate those people, but that they should never feel or apologize for who they are because they have every right and entitlement to be who they are and no no difference divides humanity we all have differences whether it's your big toe is smaller than your little toe or your brown eyes or blue eyes or whatever difference we choose to polarize at that point in time they are all just arbitrary differences that mean absolutely nothing 
Yeah, and that is such an empowering message for young people. That is incredible because, you know, as, as you said, it's easy for young people to be idealistic and actually think the world is a kind place. And it's not so much that people are going about their daily business looking to hate other people. It's just that people fear others that are not like them, don't they? I, I think sometimes that it's just as simple as that, isn't it? We are scared of of anyone that reminds us that perhaps we aren't the best. There's this. Con I think it's part of the human experience is to try yeah. to be the best. It goes back to a bit of maybe tribalism and sort of out competing yeah. each other. But yeah. I think it worked well for you know the, the 270,000 years that humans lived in caves and tribes, and we were defending those tribes against the you know, marauding tribes from from other villages or whatever. It worked really well. But now we live in a globalized world, an interconnected world where we've segregated our skills, right? We don't all have to hunter gather anymore. Now we've got the supermarket to do that. And we've got the you know we've got the the, the clothier the, the the clothes store to get our clothes. We've got the bank to get our money. We've got all these different things now. So we don't need to compete with each other because we are actually all helping each other thrive through our different specialisms. Um, and therefore we should stop these tribalistic behaviors and we should start to work more as a unit. I think once we learn to do that, the human race will really step up a gear and we, there's no limit to what we can achieve. We're the only sapient species in the known universe, the only species that's able to ask questions like, who am I? Why do I exist? What is my purpose? What will be my legacy? Those, no one else, no other species on earth can True. override their instincts except for us. So let's do yeah. it, let's override our instincts. Yeah, you know, that that's such an inspiring message and I really, really love it. So, Ian, let's talk about your consulting journey, because when we first got to know each other, you were quite early stage. And I think you were thinking, oh, my God, what am I going to do? And, you, you know, you really had just started out. And that was about a year ago. Right. So, so much has changed for you during that time. So let's let let's hear all about it. Well, so, so now I, I was walking around London. It was Black History Month. So so what's that, October? Uh, and I, I was naively thinking, hey, you know, this guy's just broken five world records. Everyone is all over the news. Everyone is saying what a hero he is. You know, you'd think that I would get a job offer or something, but I, I didn't get a single one. Not a single bank called me and said, hey, can we learn from some of the things that you, you've, you know, you've discovered and, and I've understood and identified? Not a single bank did that. So I'm walking around London. I'm seeing all these billboards about Black history month and you know, there's lots of beaches of black people mm -hmm. on the front of them and all every bank and company is saying how much they care about black lives and I realized that in that moment I understood more about oppression than anyone else in the world because not only have I represented these people in the bank but now I'm a whistleblower now I'm at the time homeless unemployed and also I, I had also had my my job offer from a leading DNI consultancy the world's biggest LGBTQ consultancy was cancelled after I was offered the contract because the board member of that consultancy also happened to be the CEO of the bank that I had just left, and he he used his leverage to to cancel that. So wow. systemic retaliations hit me all over the shop, and I just realized I have a duty to humanity to capture this knowledge in a firm that can teach other firms how not to make these mistakes, including other DNI consultancies and other banks. So that's when Daylight Consulting was formed. We're called DEI and then for diversity, equity, inclusion, and then light because we fight darkness with light and we, we fight hatred with love. We are a full service consultancy. So we do assessment and advisory, change management, 
uh, coaching, training, speakers, experts, business intelligence, primary research. We're just about to announce the largest ever DEI uh, research paper and investigation into financial services in history in conjunction with King's Business School. I hope I can announce that. I think I can. And that will be massive. It's 10 times the size of Project Speak Up was last year. And that will really kick us up a gear because we'll be able to finally rank financial institutions as how they're doing and we'll be able to give them advice and support proactively we're going to do that whether they like it or not on how they can change and become more meaningful how can they can match their words with meaningful actions i think that's where we're, we're lacking the promises are being broken so let's help them keep their promises that's what my firm does yeah and i think that's so amazing and the thing is the demand has become insatiable hasn't it ian so we were talking about this early on before we got on air but yeah you're very very sought after right now well, people think, you know, they, they, they read Whistleblower and they think, oh, this guy's going to be hard, you know, trouble. He's going to be, you know, he's not going to be trustworthy and everything. But when they meet me, when people meet me and they realize that actually it's just the same as racism, you know, if you judge a book by its cover, you're going to see what you want. But actually, I'm not this vindictive, critical, judgmental person that, that, that tears people apart. I'm, I'm very, I'm very warm, I'm very kind, I'm very fair. And I'm, I'm not in the business of judging people or criticizing people. I'm simply saying, here's my perspective. Let me help you understand that perspective. And if you want, I'll stick around and I'll help you deliver your, your, your mission as well and keep your promises. That's, I'm all about keeping promises. And if firms like that message, then, then I'm, I'm all ears and I will never hurt anyone. If they dislike that message and they want to, to break their promises, <laughs> then, then I'm probably not the right consultant for them. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, keeping promises, that is the hallmark of integrity, right? So, I mean, what, you know, if a financial institution does not want to be aligned with integrity, well, I mean, why should we trust them? Why should we put our money with them? Because, you know, it just makes them, it just makes them, you know, just not have any value, right? Because trust is the most important thing, isn't it, when it comes to financial services? You, you bang on the money as always. If you look at the back of a £10 note or in the US a $10 note and you read what's written on it, it actually just says, I promise to pay the bearer the sum of £10. This isn't £10. It's a promissory note. And mm -hmm. all the money in the system is essentially just an IOU. And IOUs only work on trust, as you correctly said. Our financial system is built on trust. And when you lose trust, Look at what happened with Northern Rock. Suddenly we're seeing queues and queues of people outside a bank. It was still open. It was still solvent, but people lost trust in it and they didn't believe that it would be able to service their debts. So they took all their money out of it, causing it to fail. The financial system is so delicate. It is built on trust. And if mm. we allow that trust to collapse through illegitimacy, through nepotism, through poor leadership, through entitlement, all these things I was seeing of otherwise untalented men, mostly who were rising to the top, only by sabotaging the the, the, the chances of people not like them or, or better than them, then that unfortunately will be the end of our financial system. We're already seeing it. Fintechs, uh, fintechs and challenger banks are really taking our banks for a ride at the moment and their technology is better, their service is better, their product is better, their customer experience is better. The only way our banks will survive, and in fact the only difference between our banks and fintechs Everyone's got technology now. We're in the 21st century industry 4.0. The reason why we call them fintechs rather than banks is because they're inclusive. 
Oh. The only difference. That's why that's really? why they are succeeding. Because they're small they're smaller than nimble, they're more inclusive, they're more representative, and that allows them to transcend these issues I'm talking about, the illegitimacy and the nepotism. They don't care about that. Just like you and I don't care about that. We've got small businesses. Oh, I've got small business that I'm trying yeah, to grow. I, so I don't have time to be yeah. racist. I don't have time to be sexist or homophobic. I need to survive. And the way I survive yeah. is I get top talent from wherever I can. I don't care who that is. I don't care where they work from. I don't care what hours they do. I just want them to deliver. And that's the difference between small businesses, startups, fintechs, and ultimately banks. Banks are, think that they have everything going for them, but they will not exist in a few years time if they do not get their act together and start behaving themselves powerful message so if you're a senior leadership in a bank and you're listening to this get your act together right now <laughs> <laughs> yeah tough message. Yeah. tough messages i'm sorry but that, that, I, I i speak truth it, it, i have to I'm trying to save these banks. I, I really am. I know it sounds, and so, I hope it doesn't sound vindictive, but it is just my perspective. Take it or leave it. But there is no illusion. Banks are losing market share to fintechs. Banks have all the money, all the staff, all the, all the product, all the resources. Why are they losing? Because they can't change. They need yeah. to start to change. Otherwise, they will get left behind. Yeah. And, and, you know, this is a very long standing issue. I mean, I remember when I when I worked in media, I mean, I suppose I still work in media, but when I actually worked in the, you know, big sort of media agencies and advertising agencies and so on. I mean, our home was in Soho. So obviously the city was where obviously all the banking was. And sometimes we used to come together at some kind of drunken event or whatever. And it was an absolute clash of culture because obviously, you know, media agencies were all about, you know, being kind of very authentic, very individual, very outspoken, very, you know, anti-authoritarian in a way, because, you know, you have to be that way in order to be the trailblazer. And, yeah. you know, the, it was noticeable. The culture was so, so different. You know, a lot of kind of very, very, very sexist, you know, just old school kind of uh, people, really. And there is no place for that in today's society. There really isn't. And I think that is the message, you know, that is one of the reasons why I wanted to have you as a guest. And also, you know, I am right behind you because, because you know, we, we live in a very diverse society. Everybody has something to offer, right? And this, uh, the other thing is this issue of neuro, neurodiversity. So one of my clients, for example, he's an ADHD coach, and I've learned a lot about ADHD, which is technically like a lot of these neurodiverse, you know, sort of conditions, let's just say, they are also superpowers, like Elon Musk is asked, Asperger's or high functioning yeah. autism, right? ADHD gives you incredible energy and focus and purpose. And so used in the right way, those so-called disabilities can be incredible, can't they? Phenomenal. I mean, look at Albert Einstein. He had dyspraxia and suspected ADHD. Dick Newton had, I believe, ADHD. And Stephen Hawking, arguably the biggest, the best mind in human history, had motor neuron disease. Most of us think of disease, you know, disability. We think of these things as being negatives. But actually, those, those conditions made those men, men, some of the breast minds in history. If only we had some more women to hold up there. But as I said earlier on, the reason women aren't making it into those, those they are making it now into the Supreme Court, into the Downing Street, into, into the White House, they're winning Nobel Peace Prizes, 
sure. But actually, if you look at the the number of world leaders who are women, there's less than less than ten percent. It's about ten percent of of world leaders are women, and the number of women in boardrooms it's five percent, and it's shrinking. It's such a shame that those those roles are yeah, and and so is the number of non-white leaders in the FTSE 350. They've shrunk seventy percent in the last seven years. We think that we wow. are going through progress. We think the world is getting more tolerant. It is not. The complacency we have that this it will be a generational shift it's an illusion because they are training people to take their place these people that don't value difference so until we actually do something and we change the course of history we will not unfortunately benefit from gradual improvement in hearts and minds it does not like work like that not in banking at least yeah you know that and another interesting statistic is women founders and venture capital and also people of color and venture capital so i read somewhere that something like two percent of venture capital goes to female founded businesses and in fact the statistics are even worse when it comes to color people of color which is incredible isn't it two percent you know what is going on really I mean, it's it's yeah. tribalism. Unfortunately, it's still yeah. happening, and and it and it is actually exponential because you know, as you're describing, that money has come from predominantly white-owned businesses. It's then yeah. given to predominantly white-owned businesses, who then start up more white-owned businesses, and it becomes you know a self-perpetuating you know eventuality that ultimately we will live in a world where all resources are hoarded by a very small subset of white people yeah. you know it's not all women it's not all disabled people it's not all young people actually if you whittle down all the differences that we don't like it's actually a very small proportion of white people that actually benefit it's about something like in the region of 1.1 percent globally right. of white white people are in control of of 95 percent of the wealth and that is a very scary number because undoing that morally and legally that illegitimacy of the flow of resources and wealth given what we know from the human genome project that all human life is equal in terms of capability that is going to be very hard to unwind it's going to take generations there's going to be lots of hazard there's going to be lots of companies winding up because they can't meet their debts from unwinding all of this this injustice that they've perpetuated and i cannot you know it's going to be really hard hitting the the, the, the tough times ahead i don't mean to be down at debbie down here but but I, it, tough times are ahead unfortunately because of the past decisions made by people in generations gone by we don't have to replicate those same decisions we can make a decision today let's change yeah and i think i think the important message is is that really that this is not a, a simple turnaround a one time only exercise actually shifting a culture is something that you know it requires consistent effort over a period of time doesn't it and eventually with the right investment and the right effort businesses will come out on top and they will be recognized as leaders and they will attract the best talent because you know this isn't just about being being nice to underprivileged people right or people who are discriminated against you know in society it is there is also a real commercial imperative there isn't it that, that's our, our brand line. It's because it's commercial, not just correct. You haven't heard me. I think I don't think you've heard me once say, you know, help black people, help women. I, I'm all about 
this makes financial sense. Let's do this because there's lots of money in this. I'm a banker. So once a banker, always a banker. So I'm looking at the numbers and I'm thinking we can make a fortune if we become the most inclusive bank in the world. If we start to appeal to broader sets of talent, if we run a meritocracy where only the, the most capable people rise up rather than the least capable, we can really promote our brand. We can promote the right people into the right positions to succeed. And we can stop our peak price to equity ratio from flatlining as it has done. My bank, if you liquidated all of its assets, its offices and its 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 resources, you'd actually earn more money than if you sold it on the stock market. And that is scary because it meant that every day we were coming in, we were destroying value. And that cannot be the case. These companies, it's the time we've already lost in the court of law. Okay, we know the numbers are going to be bad on the ethnicity pay gap, the gender pay gap. We know they're going to be bad. But the court of public opinion has yet to be won. And the firms that go out there and hold their hands up and decide to change, they will win that court of public opinion. And that is how they will survive. The the, the hardship to come is when people will love them and they can say that company was part of the solution. That's That's amazing. Yeah. So, I mean, this message means that Ian is, you know, pretty booked up, you know, with a big wait list for his services. So if you want to engage Ian or his business, I would definitely do it today. Make sure that you make contact with him because he has an incredible offer. And so, Ian, what's the best way for people to find out more about you or to get in touch with you? We're scaling up so that we can handle the demand. We just signed a major international bank and hopefully talking to a few more. So really exciting times to be actually working with companies and helping them become better. The best way to contact us is on our website, www.daylightconsulting.com. That's D-E-I, lightconsulting.com, where you can find the full list of our training courses, our services. You can contact us there on the form and find out a bit more about our identity. That's amazing. Well, Ian, I just wanted to thank you so much for coming on the show tonight. It's been such a pleasure to interview you. We've had the most amazing conversation. It's been, yeah, I'm absolutely buzzing because it's been a fantastic chat, you know, that we've had. And I I know that we will have created incredible value for many of our listeners. We're we're feeling delighted. It's how we always aim to leave people feeling. (laughs) I hope I haven't made your guests too miserable, but I'm so grateful. Well done. Thank you. No, no, no. I mean, absolutely. And and, I mean, the thing is, you know, this this image of like a whistleblower as being like, you know, a, a kind of sour grapes or something like that. I mean, look, whistleblowers are brave. You know, they're courageous. They're people who care about justice and injustice. I love whistleblowers. You know, they're, they're my kind of people. You know, I, I mean, I've been like a whistleblower in training ever since I was about four years old. You know, right? Yeah. Well, so, any, anyone can be one. You know, we are the yeah. last line of defense against wrongdoing that has already happened. Yes. That is who we are and what we do. And without yes. us, the public would be less safe. So I, I'm happy to perform this duty. I wish it would have been someone else, but I'll happily do it again because I yeah. Think well, I mean that that that's it, really, isn't it? You know, people don't always love leaders. They don't always appreciate them, and they don't always, you know, want to stand beside them. You know, that is true. Sometimes people want to kind of go back and hide and like it's oh yeah, I'll just let him get on with it and fight my battles. And unfortunately, I think for people like us who are strong people and we care you know well we have we have those characters that are able to hold the torch for others that are 
uh, perhaps, you know, less able to to be strong in this respect. So, yeah, it's been great to interview you, Ian. Thank you so much again. And I'll look forward to speaking to you soon and getting the, the interview out. <laughs> Thank you, Jane. Take care. Thank you for having me on. Ciao, everybody. listening in if you enjoyed this episode please subscribe to rate and review my podcast as it will help me bring the power of connection to the world i work one-to-one to help entrepreneurs ignite the power of authentic connection in their businesses and lives i also help them accelerate their results through attracting and converting more of their ideal clients and if this is something you'd like to do too why not head on over to www.idealclientsuccess.com slash masterclass and I'll show you how.